Now, uh, as we jump into today, I want to take a moment to recognize a little bit of what's going on this weekend. Uh, and the first would be simply this. Um, this Friday, uh, we recognized and marked as a world uh, the one-year anniversary of the beginning of the conflict of the invasion in Ukraine. Uh, and so we see that this last Friday, and around the world, people recognize that. And here's just what I want to acknowledge here in the room. Uh, I want to acknowledge that there are a lot of different opinions, uh, a lot of disagreements, and a lot of different ideas on how our nation should or shouldn't be involved with that conflict. And so even here in this room, there's going to be a different opinions, different views, different ideas uh, of how our nation should or shouldn't be involved with Ukraine. But here is where I hope there's no disagreement where I hope there is no disagreement and believe there is no disagreement in this room, is that when there is conflict, war, tragedy, and heartbreak and devastation in this world, that the people of God are called to pray, that we are called to be a people of prayer in the moments of heartache in this world. And so what we're gonna do, church, is a church that's been supporting people in Ukraine and Russia, that's been helping with people who have fled those countries, who have been involved generously and financially, as a church that has really leaned in on this conflict. We wanna recognize the one-year mark of this, and we wanna take a moment of silence this morning. A moment of silence just to recognize the depth of the pain that you've seen on your television screens, that you've seen in news reports. It's easy to callous your heart or say that's half a world away and not worry about that. But these are real human beings created in the image of God, loved by Jesus, and invited into fellowship with him. And so we're going to take a moment of silence here in this church to just recognize this conflict. We're going to pray for God's peace, and then we're going to jump into what God has for us in his word this morning. Would you take, even those of you online, a moment of silence? Father in heaven, this weekend we pause and we recognize a conflict that's going on far beyond our borders, where for so many of us it's a distant thing we only see through screens, and yet we want to recognize the real pain of men and women and children who are in the fighting or who've just been devastated or their houses turned to rubble, who live under constant fear of war. God, we as your people cry out to you this morning and we ask that you would bring peace a supernatural kind of peace, not just to this conflict, but all over the world. God, we know there comes a day where the wars and the violence cease, and we pray you would hasten that day. Father, we pray you would turn the hearts of those in this war, Mr. Putin, of anyone else, that you would turn their hearts back, that you would turn them back to Jesus, and that this conflict would cease. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ in both nations, who are calling out to you and calling out for justice. We pray that their voices would be heard, that you would bring a quick and miraculous resolution to this, and that your church would step into the devastation, bring healing, peace, and the reconciliation that only comes through the gospel. So God, we submit this to you and we ask that you would do what only you can do in the midst of this global conflict. We pray this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, I want to invite you to grab that, those of you online as well, and flip to the Old Testament book of Zephaniah. 
Now, if you weren't here last week, you may think Zephaniah, and you may not be sure where that is. And as always, I want to point you to the holy table of contents and allow you to flip there. Now, now as we get there, I, I want to just recognize what we recognized last week as we jumped into this three-week series in the book of Zephaniah. That the book of Zephaniah and these other Old Testament minor prophets are difficult for us to read. And so often what happens as Christians is we skip over them. We blow past them. Or if we're doing the Bible in a year reading plan, we read through it, go, huh? And then move along. And we do this for a few reasons. It's because their setting is unfamiliar to us. We're not quite sure what's going on in the world of these minor prophets. That their style is different for us. We're just not sure kind of what to do with that style. But maybe most importantly, the content of these books are uncomfortable for us. They speak about some things and teach about some things that we would otherwise not want to look at. But that's why we believe we must look at this. The scriptures say that all of scripture, all 66 books of the canon are God-breathed and they're profitable for us. And so we believe as we dig into this book for a second week this morning, that God has something to speak, not just to people way back then, but to our church in this season right now. For those of you that missed last week, I'll just recap it in this way. Zephaniah chapter one, here's what we covered. We covered the word of the Lord to his people. But like in other words, last week what we covered is what God had to say to his people Judah, to his people. And what we said last week was that his primary command to his people is that they would repent, that they would turn from their sin, that God's people, his covenant chosen people, were walking in sin and wickedness and outright rebellion against him. And what God called them to do as they were walking in this direction is to plant their foot in the ground, repent, and go in the opposite direction. The word of the Lord last week to hit God's people was that they ought to repent. And then as we fast forward to chapter two, this morning what we're gonna see is this. We heard last week, we heard the word of the Lord to his people. This week we're gonna hear the word of the Lord to the nations, to the nations, to all the other nations of the earth. So God has already spoken to his people, but what does he have to say to the people who are all around the world? What does he have to say to the other people in the world? And to give you an outline as we jump in so you can help navigate this complex chapter, I wanna give you three things that this chapter is about. Number one, we're gonna see that there's evil in the world. There are wicked, evil, terrible things going on all over the world. Number two, God is going to do something about it. God will not let this wickedness and this evil go on endlessly or for all of eternity. God is gonna step in and he is gonna do something about it. And number three, God's people should live accordingly. In other words, there's wickedness in the world. God's going to do something about it. And therefore, in light of those two truths, God's people should live in a certain kind of way. I want you to see that here in Zephaniah chapter two. It'll be up on the screens for those of you who don't have a Bible with you. It begins, and we're gonna look at four different nations here. Four different nations that God is speaking to. Here's the first one, Philistia. It says in verse four, Gaza will be abandoned and Ashkelon left in ruins. At midday, Ashdod will be emptied and Ekron will be uprooted. Woe to you who live by the sea, you Karathite people. The word of the Lord is against you, Canaan, the land of the Philistines. He says, I will destroy you and none will be left. The land by the sea will become pastures, having wells for shepherds and pens for flocks. That land will belong to the remnant of the people of Judah. And there they will find pasture. In the evening, they will lay down in the houses of Ashkelon. Their Lord, their God will take care of them and he will restore their fortunes. So we said that God is going to speak in this particular passage, this particular chapter to four different nations, 
four different groups of people. And the first group of people we see is Philistia. This is the Philistines. The, the Philistines, this kind of ancient enemy of the people of God in the promised land that we read about all throughout the Old Testament. And here's what we need to see and notice about the Philistines. Here's what's true about them. The nation of Philistia was known for their rejection of God. They rejected the true God, the Lord of heaven and earth, and instead chose to worship idols. And we see as we read through the Old Testament, those idols pop up and lure the people of God away from the one true God. The nation of Philistia was known for the rejection of God. Let me show you the second nation here out of four. This is Moab and Ammon. He says, I have heard the insults of Moab and the taunts of the Amorites, or the Ammonites, who insulted my people and made threats against their land. Therefore, surely as I live, declares the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, surely Moab will become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a place of weeds and salt pits, a wasteland forever. The remnant of my people will plunder them. The survivors of my nation will inherit their land. This is what they will get in return from their pride, for their insulting and mocking the people of the Lord Almighty. The Lord will be awesome to them when he destroys them and the gods of the earth. Distant nations will bow down to him, all of them in their own lands. So the first one we saw was the nation of Philistia. And then we see the second of four nations God is going to address, and that is the nations of Moab and Ammon. The nations of Moab and Ammon, and here's what the nations of Moab and Ammon are known for here. The nations of Moab and Ammon were known for their contempt for God's people. If you look here in verse 10, it says, they're mocking the people of the Lord Almighty. They're taunting them. They're belittling them. They have contempt for them. So here's who God is speaking to. He's speaking to one nation who has rejected him, another nation who is mocking and belittling the people of God. I want you to see the third nation here. It's the nation of Cush. This is one of the shortest verses in the book and one of the shortest in the Bible. You Cushites too, you will be slain by my sword. It just gets right to the point with Cush. It says, you Cushites, you will be slain by my sword. And there's not a lot of hints here of kind of what's going on, but there's kind of two we see. The first is that the nation of Cush, we see pop up just a few times in the Old Testament. In 2 Kings 19 and 1 Chronicles 14, we see Cush, and every time we see them, they are a nation that is going to war. They are marching out in battle and in conquest. And then the second hint here is how God says he's going to deal with them, that they will be slain by my sword. And so based on these hints, here's what we pick up about the nation of Cush, that the nation of Cush was known for violence, for devaluing human life, for not caring about the sanctity of every human being. They were known for violence. Again, there's four nations that God is going to speak to. We saw the first in Philistia that does not recognize and does not receive God. The second in Moab and Ammon, they have contempt for God's people. The third is Cush that's known for its violence. Let me show you the fourth and final nation here. It is the nation, the empire of Assyria. And says he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, leaving Nineveh utterly desolate and dry as the desert. Flocks and herds will lie down there, creatures of every kind. The desert owl and the screech owl will roost on her columns. Their hooting will echo through the windows. Rubble will find the doorways and the beams of cedar will be exposed. This is, what the city of Re this is the city of revelry that lived in safety. She said to herself, I am the one and there's no one beside me. What ruin she has become, a lair for wild beasts. All who pass by her scoff and shake their fists. 
So again, we describe four nations, and here's the fourth and final one, and this is the nation of Assyria. This is the nation, the empire of Assyria that has already destroyed the 10 northern tribes of Israel, has come in and just wiped them out. And the nation of Assyria was known for its pride. So there's four nations described here. Four nations that God is speaking to and four specific sins of those nations that God is pointing out and saying this is a problem and I'm going to deal with it. To to help you kind of grasp what these nations are all about, let me show you um, a map here. And this map might be helpful for some of you to understand what we're talking about. And so what you'll see here on the map in the lower part is Judah. Now Judah is who God is speaking to throughout this entire book. These southern two tribes of Judah. And then you've got the northern kingdom of Israel. Now that's already been wiped out. And it's just there for your reference. That constitutes the entire holy land, the land of Israel. It divides into two nations, Israel in the north, destroyed by the Assyrians. And you've got Judah, two tribes, living in the south. Now, God speaks to four specific nations. And if you remember what those four nations are in order, he starts with Philistia, the Philistines who are to the west of the people of God. And then he's gonna go on and talk about Moab and Ammon on the eastern side of the people of God. Then he talks about Cush, which is really even below Egypt. It is to the south of the people of God. And then he speaks to Assyria, which is to the north of the people of God. Now here's why my handy little map here is helpful. This is not God just randomly closing his eyes and pointing his finger at random nations on the earth and telling them what's wrong with them. That is not what Zephaniah 2 is all about. Zephaniah 2 is not God randomly pointing his finger at the sins of the world. It is God pointing his finger at Judah, drawing a circle around them, and identifying the sins that surround them. Do do you recognize here in this map that the four nations that are named here are to the north, the west, the south, and the east of Judah? These are the nations that surround the people of God, surround the people of Judah, and God is calling out their wickedness and calling it for what it is because he wants to recognize the world that they actually live in. Like if I could put it to you this way, let me identify the world that Zephaniah spoke to. This world of the people of God surrounded by these nations who are filled with wickedness. That this world for the people of God that is surrounded by these specific four nations that God calls out. Let let me give you a summary of that world. Number one, God has been rejected. They have rejected God and instead turned to their own ways, their own sins, their own path, their own strength, their own idols. Number two, those who trust God are insulted and belittled. They're mocked, they're belittled, they're spoke down to, they're called backwards and ignorant and silly for believing in the Lord, the God of heaven and earth. Number three, violence is normal, And life is not valued. In these nations, God is pointing out that the human being is not valued. Human beings are not loved and cherished and treasured as people created in God's image. And number four, pride is celebrated and humility is absent. This is the world that God points out as living among Judah. That surrounding Judah is the world that is described in this kind of way. And here's the question I have for all of you this morning. Do you recognize this world? Do you see it? Like if you look closely enough, what you'll see is that our world today could be described in this way. Like this is exactly the kind of world we live in. This is exactly the kind of world human beings inhabit. And the point of showing you this is to show that Zephaniah can be confusing and seem out of date. What does this have to do with us today? But 2,600 years ago, 
This is the world that was being described. And isn't it funny that the world hasn't really changed much? The world has not very changed much. Human nature has not changed much. Sin has not changed much. This is the same thing that is going on in our world today, which leads me to this conclusion, that the fact that there is evil in this world is neither new nor surprising. And that's what we should kind of anchor ourselves in. When we read through an Old Testament prophet like the book of Zephaniah, we should recognize that the evil and the wickedness that's going on in our world in 2023, it's not new and it's not surprising. It's the same old sins, the same old evil, showing up in new ways over and over and over again. So here's what we said at the very beginning. Here's the outline for today's sermon. The outline for today's sermon is simply this. Number one, this is the word of the Lord about the nations. Number one, there's evil in this world. Number two, what do we see? That God is going to do something about it. There's evil in this world, in the ancient world. There's evil in this world now. And what is God going to do? He's going to do something about it. And let me show you here what God is gonna do about it. In verse four, the Lord promises to empty the idolatrous nation of Philistia. In verse, two, or in verse nine, the Lord promises to destroy the cruel nations of Moab and Ammon. In verse 12, the Lord promises to strike down the violent nation of Cush. And in verse 13, the Lord promises to humble the proud nation of Assyria. So in other words, what is the second chapter of Zephaniah all about? It is the recognition that there is evil in the world. There's always been evil in the world. There is evil in the world. And God recognizes it for what he is and for what it is. And then that same God says, I will not allow this evil and wickedness and rebellion to go on forever. I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to bring my judgment upon that wickedness and that evil. And he describes it in these ways. Now, now here is what I just want to recognize in the room. I think passages like these are one of the reasons we tend to skip over the minor prophets. Because most of us tend to get kind of uneasy with the idea of God's judgment God's judgment, God's harshness, it seems harsh, it seems mean, it seems overbearing, it seems like too much for us, and so we don't wanna read it. And yet here's what I wanna declare to you this morning, and I hope you see this clearly when you read the Bible, that the judgment of God, the wrath of God, God's anger towards sin is good news. It is good news. I've shared this one with you before. I want you to hear it again to frame it up. It's this, that Wayne Grudem says this in his systematic theology. He says, the fact that there will be a final judgment assures that ultimately God's universe is fair for God is in control and he keeps accurate records and renders just judgment. Well, like in other words, if you've ever looked at the world and thought this is unjust, this is unfair, this is not right, I can't believe she's getting away with that, I can't believe that politician's getting away with that, I can't believe that nation or that group or that people are doing that thing, here's what the judgment of God says, no one's getting away with anything. God knows it all, God sees it all, God's gonna take care of it all. The universe we operate in and the universe we live in is fair I could put it to you this way. Let me give you five ways to think about it. God's judgment means that the bad guys don't win. Whoever the enemies are, whoever the bad guys are, whoever the wicked ones are who are oppressing and hurting and destroying God's people, they don't win. God's judgment means that the tyrants will fall. Like if you're living in the ancient world and you've got the Roman Empire with its boot upon your throat and it's crushing you down, you've got the Roman Empire burning Christians alive, feeding them to lions, the ancient Christians held on to this because of God's judgment. The emperor, he won't last. The tyrants will fall. Number three, God's judgment means injustice is not permanent. 
like whatever the injustice in the world is that just makes your blood boil that you see on TV and you're outraged by it, it's not permanent. God will deal with it. Number four, God's judgment means that truth will eventually come out. If you feel like people are being deceived and lied and the entire world is being deceived by something, I want you to know the truth will eventually come out. And number five, God's judgment means that evil won't last forever. Isn't that good news? Is it good news to know at some point God's gonna say enough? Enough is enough and he will step in and he will put evil to an end now and forevermore. This is the promise of judgment in the scriptures. It's what we see in Zephaniah 2. There is wickedness in the world. There is evil in the world. But God's not just gonna sit back and let it run its course forever. God is going to step in and do something about it. And then here's how we, as the people of God living in 2023, need to imagine this judgment of God. We need to remember that the question is not will it happen. The question is when will it happen? And this is what we lean on. We go back to this phrase, I know it will happen. It's just a matter of time. I know Jesus will return. I know judgment will come. I know God's gonna take care of the wickedness and the evil and the injustice that are rampant in our world. It's just a matter of time. In fact, here's how it's put in 2 Peter. Peter puts it this way. He says, above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own desire. They will say, where is this coming, where is this coming that he promised Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. In other words, it's saying there's gonna be a group of people in the world who go, I don't think God's coming at all. I keep hearing about Jesus' second coming and yet it hasn't seemed to happen yet. The world just seems to go on as it is. I don't even think Jesus is coming at all. But in verse five, it says, but they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters, the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. And at, but, but by that same word, or, or by the same word, the present heavens and the earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction for the ungodly. But verse eight, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. In other words, if you forget nothing else, or if you remember nothing else, remember this. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Uh, like in other words, when God looks back to the crucifixion of Jesus for him 2,000 years ago, it, it was like Friday. Like, like it was just like right there. Like, like in other words, he can look back and just see that and then it says in verse nine, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some people understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. In other words, we know God's gonna bring us judgment. We know God is going to deal with the wickedness and evil in this world. We know it doesn't go on forever. We know God at some point is gonna send Jesus back in glory to judge the living and the dead. So you ask, why not now? Why is he waiting so long? Why not come and put an end to all of this? Surely there's been enough. And the answer is just really simply put here. He wants everyone to come to repentance. God is waiting so that more people can come into his family. So again, let me step back to our framework for the entire sermon this morning. It's simply this. This is the word of the Lord about the nations. One, there's evil in the world. Two, God is going to do something about it. And number three, God's people should live accordingly. There's evil in our world today. There was evil in Judah's day. God is going to do something about it. That's what he promises to these nations. To each of these nations, we can go through the history books and see how God brought them low. And then how do the people of God respond? We respond in light of the fact that, though, yes, there's evil in the world. God's gonna do something about it. And then we live accordingly. And so here's how I wanna close the sermon. I wanna give you seven keys to living in an evil world. And I'm very comfortable calling our world evil. 
And it's not because there's nothing good or nothing good at all or all things are bad. It's just because we look around the world and we see the wickedness, we see the evil, we see what's going on. And so here are the seven keys for us. The seven keys, the next time you see something on the news that makes your blood boil, that the next time you see something happening and it just is so unjust, it's so wrong, it's so cruel, it's so bad that you're just angry and wanna throw something at the television. The next time you hear a politician open their mouth, and that's about it, right? Like, like, the ne- like the next time you hear something and you're just outraged at how broken and evil and wicked this world really is. I want you to remember these seven things. Number one, I want you to recognize the depth of evil in the world. I want you to recognize the depth that evil goes. I think the naive person, maybe even a naive Christian would believe that the world is mostly good and mostly lovely and occasionally bad things happen. But that is not the diagnosis the scripture gives of the world. It gives us the other, that we are living under the curse of sin, that we are in a fallen and a broken world, and that should shape our expectations of the world. It's like this, like imagine if your job required you to drive into downtown Los Angeles every day. And so you got up every morning and you got dressed and you got in your car and you started driving down. Now here's what everyone in this room, unless you're visiting from out of town, knows. Like you're going to hit mind-numbing, soul-crushing traffic. Just a few, all right? Right, you know it. You're gonna hit the 405-101 interchange and you're not gonna be sure if you want to work anymore, right? Like that's what's going to happen. And you know it's coming. That's why if there's a 7 p.m. Dodger game, most of you leave at like 11 a.m. to get to the parking lot, right? Because you know, you know this is how it's going to work. But imagine getting in your car and driving down to L.A. every day, hitting traffic and just being outraged by it. Imagine being surprised by it. Like if it happens once, I get it. But after like a year or so, you get to recognize you expect it. You bake it into your understanding of your commute that there is going to be this kind of traffic. This is the same way that we need to be able to view the world with clear eyes about what is true about our world. Listen, I'll put it this way to you this morning, three things. Number one, Christians should be saddened about the evil in the world. When I say that there is evil in the world and we need to accept that, it's not because it shouldn't move us or break our hearts. When we see things on television or on the news or on social media or in politics or entertainment, we should not just be like, whatever. It should sadden us. It should break our hearts because it breaks the heart of our God. But number two, Christians should be stirred by the evil in the world. Like our job is not just to throw up our hands and be like, well, wars happen. No, it's to step in and to help and to serve and to give generously and to serve the people who are hurting. But, but number three, let me be clear on this this morning. The Christians should not be shocked by the evil in the world. We just shouldn't be shocked by it. We shouldn't be stunned when it happens. When the next war breaks out, and I know there's gonna be a next war. I don't know what it is. I just know there'll be a next thing. When the next injustice happens, and I know there will be a next one, there will be something that happens, and we as Christians should recognize the depth of evil and not be shocked, not be surprised by it. So when we recognize the depth of evil in the world, number two, we want to receive what is good in the world. As much as I'm convinced that we are living under the curse of sin in a broken world, there are good, right, and wonderful things that are in this world that we can receive with joy. Like even as I was writing this sermon, I was thinking about it, I had this playlist going, and the playlist is called Deep Focus. It's like my playlist to block out the world and focus. I have no idea who composed the songs that I was listening to. There were no words to them, it was just music, it keeps me in the zone, it keeps me focused. I don't know if it was a Christian, I don't know if it wasn't, I just received it as a good blessing in my life. 
I think we need to be able as Christians to receive good blessings in our life, whether or not they have the tag Christian attached to them. In music and books and movies and television show, if there is something that is good and right and praiseworthy and true, we can receive it, even if it's not attached to the Christian label of things. So we recognize the depth of evil in this world and then we receive what is good in the world and we receive it with joy knowing that is God's common grace to a broken and a fallen world. Number three, we wanna reject the weapons of this world. We wanna reject the weapons of this world. Now, what are the weapons of this world? You'll notice this very quickly. Um, Here's the weapons of this world. If someone hurts you, what do you do? You hurt them back. If someone gossips about you, you gossip about them. If someone lies to you, you lie to them. If someone hurts you, you hit them back twice as strong. Our world operates in a way where if you say something cruel about someone, they're gonna hit you twice as hard. These are the weapons of the world. The weapons of the world are vengeance. The weapons of the world are payback. And yet let me remind you the way of Jesus. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter five, three things. He says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek too. Matthew 5.40, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Matthew 5.41, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Like here's what I hope. I hope that the words of Jesus actually make us uncomfortable sometimes. I hope that the words and the commands of Jesus actually make us like, oh, I don't wanna do that. If someone wants my coat, I don't wanna give them my coat. I wanna give them nothing. But you say, okay, give them the other thing, give them my shirt. If they slap me, if they insult me, if they said something rude about me, I'm just supposed to turn the other cheek? But then here's what Jesus says after that, and it's beautiful. He summarizes the whole thing. Jesus says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We live in a world where many people, even well-known Christian leaders, wanna tell us that times are different now. The enemy, the bad people, the people who are pushing against us, they're using cruel and vindictive and terrible tactics, and so we need to do that as well. We need to strike back twice as hard. And here's what I want you to know. That is the way of the world, but that is not the way of Jesus. That is not the way of following Jesus. The way of following Jesus is this. We pray for our enemies. We love people who persecute us. We do not strike back. We do not retaliate. We do not dunk on and humiliate and destroy people who come up against us. We pray for them and we love them. That is the way of Jesus. I've had people tell me before, Brian, that's naive. No, naive is believing that vengeance is actually gonna solve anything. Naive is believing that you getting back at the person will actually settle the score and make all things even. We reject the weapons of the world. We do not fight like other people. We as Christians have a different call, a different way, a different way of operating. And even if the worst things happen, we still love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. So number one, is that we're gonna recognize the depth of evil in the world. Number two, we're gonna receive what's good in the world. Number three, we're gonna reject the weapons of the world. Number four, we're gonna raise your level of compassion for the world. We're gonna raise our level of compassion for the world. One of the great um, things you will wrestle with through the course of your life is this, is whether when you look at the world, you are filled with compassion for it or you are filled with contempt for it. And that is a tension we will live in and something we must constantly fight against. I'll put it this way. I remember one of the first times I went on an international mission trip. And some of you who have been on international mission trips, especially when you go to countries that just do not have the same level of wealth that we do, it can be shocking at first. 
You see the way people are living, that children don't have shoes or clothes or parents have given up food so their kids can eat. People are hungry and in need of medical care. They're in need of housing. They're in need of just the basic necessities of life. And I remember as a student, back when I was in school, I remember going on one of these mission trips and my heart just broke for these people. Like I walked around this little village and I was just filled with compassion for what these people were going through. My heart was stirred and I just looked at them and I was filled with compassion. But then here's what I'll never forget. I got on a plane and I flew back home. And then I went back to my school, back to my life. And I looked around at what was going on, how people were behaving, the vulgar language they were using, the sexual sin they were walking in, the way they talked, the way they acted, the way they rejected God and belittled those who loved him. And I was not filled with compassion for those people. I was filled with contempt and judgment and anger and condescension toward those people. And then I'll just never forget like having this quiet time and just having this time with the Lord. And he just convicted me of this. And here's what he convicted me that was true of me. And I wonder if this is true of anyone else here. When it came to material poverty, I had compassion. When it came to people who didn't have food or clothing or medicine or housing, I had compassion. But when it came to spiritual poverty, I had contempt when I looked at people who didn't know Jesus and didn't have the same inheritance and riches that the Holy Spirit puts inside of me, I was not filled with compassion for them. I was filled with contempt. And the Holy Spirit said, no more of that. That can't be the way you live. You need to look at people who are far from me, who do not know Jesus, with the same compassion you have for those who are walking in material poverty. And I wonder if anyone in this room needs to hear that this morning, that our temptation is to look at people who are far from Jesus and acting out in that sin. We are convinced that we're supposed to show them contempt. But the scriptures call us to something different. I am called not to contempt, but to compassion. So here's what I've been convinced of for many years, that you will know how much you are like Jesus by how you react to people who hate him. You will know how much you are like Jesus by how you react to people who hate him, who despise him, who reject him. And if your heartbeat is that person doesn't love God and so I hate them, that person walks in sin so I despise them, that person's promoting a worldview that I don't agree with so they are my enemy and I am just cruel to them, you are not walking like Jesus. What do we do? We want to raise our level of compassion for the world. This is part of what we mean in the Calvary 23 vision when we talk about dramatically escalating our Christ-like compassion. It is that we look at the world and rather than being filled with contempt for it, we are filled with compassion. Here's the fifth one. The fifth one is that we refuse to act as the judge of the world. We refuse to act as the judge of the world. Uh, again, the great temptation for me and probably for you is when you see certain things in this world, certain sins, certain behaviors, certain patterns, certain movements, things you see on television or in the media, things you see on the national TV or whatever you see, you, your temptation is just to see it. And if you know it doesn't align with God's word, if you know it doesn't align with God's truth, your temptation is to judge it. That exists within every single one of us, this impulse to wanna judge and condemn and say that's wrong. And what's right about that impulse is sometimes we can rightly identify that that is wrong. And yet what happens is we have this impulse to say that's wrong, that's bad, that's no good. And then sometimes what happens is we feel so strongly about that that we not only want to condemn it ourselves, but we want our church to condemn it as well. 
So what we want is something happens during the week, we see it on television, we see it on the news, we see it in education or in politics or in some area, we're outraged by it, we come into church on Sunday and we have the expectation that Pastor Sean or myself or someone will get up on the stage and condemn the wickedness happening in this world. But then you hear nothing. We say nothing. And for some of you, you might have asked yourself the question I'm about to put on our screen. And here's the question. Why doesn't Calvary speak up on whatever? Whatever the thing is. The latest outrage, the latest thing, the latest thing everyone's talking about, the latest evil that we see in the world, the latest thing that people who have rejected God are already doing. And for so many people, they think the answer is that we're just trying to keep the peace. Or maybe even worse, they think that we're cowards. They think the reason we don't speak up is because we don't want to ruffle feathers. We don't want to make people angry. And so we just kind of stay silent and avoid the things of the world. We don't judge or condemn just because we don't want to do that. But I want you to know that it is not cowardice that keeps us from speaking. It is the clear commands of Scripture. All right, let me show you this to you in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. Paul says this. He says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Like, you know what Paul's impulse here is? Paul says, listen, if there's gonna be any judgment, any condemnation of sin, it should actually be happening among us. We should be a people who go, you know what? We are not going to tolerate sort of a high-handed sinning in our midst. We have to be a people who are passionate about our own holiness. And then Paul says, the rest of the world? He goes, who's responsible for judging that? It doesn't say my name. It doesn't say Pastor Sean's name. It doesn't say your name. It says God will judge the rest of the world. Uh, again, the issue here isn't that there aren't bad things going on in the world. The, the reason we're silent isn't because we actually kind of quietly approve of all the things going on in the world. The reason we are silent at times is because it is God's judge, ju job to judge the nations. And in fact, let me put it to you this way this morning, that our mission as a church, our mission is not to make statements about our nation. Our mission is not to get up here and give you sort of Pastor Brian or Pastor Sean's spin or, or view or, or perspective on the news from that week. Like, I just wanna be so clear on this, Calvary, this morning. Our mission is not to make statements about our nation. Our mission is to make disciples of every nation. That's what we exist to do. That's who we are. That's what we're all about. But like our job, our heartbeat here is not to just stand up here and condemn everything in the world, not because we agree with it or think it's good. Our heartbeat and our mission here is not to do that because God's gonna judge the world. Our job is to shepherd in such a way that makes disciples who live and love like Jesus. So what do we do next time there's an outrage? We refuse to act as the judge of the world. And I know you wanna do it. I wanna do it too. Believe me, I have the microphone. There's times I just wanna get up and tell you people what I think. But, 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 but listen, that is not the call of God on my life. It is not the call of God on this church. And it is not the call of God on any believer to judge those outside. God is going to do that. Our job is to be faithful to what he has called us toward now. So here's the seven keys to living in an evil world. The first is to recognize the depth of evil in the world. The second is to receive what's good in the world. Number three, we reject the weapons of the world. Then we're gonna raise our compassion for the world. We're gonna refuse to act as the judge of the world. Number six, we're gonna repent of your desire for the approval of the world. There is this little impulse inside all of us that wants to be liked. And, and I just wanna identify that. Like that's true in me, it's true in all of us. There's a little part of us that kind of wants to be liked. We wanna be accepted, we wanna be loved, and there's a good part of that, right? 
Like, if you actually live in such a way where you never care what anyone thinks about you ever, you're probably not gonna stay married very long. Um, You're probably not gonna have a great relationship with your friends or your children, certainly. Um, So there's like this impulse inside of us, and yet that can go like really wrong, right? Where like this desire to be accepted becomes a desire to be accepted by the world. And, And church, I just want you to know, if we are faithful to Jesus, we will never be accepted by the world. We never will be. There will be times the world applauds and there will be times they cheer and there will be times they appreciate what we do. But if we are faithful to Jesus, it will never line up with the world. It is a fool's errand to try to like trim Christianity down or morph it into something that's perfectly acceptable to Western culture in 2023. Because the problem is Western culture keeps changing like month by month, right? Like it just seems to constantly be this moving target. And so rather than us sanding down Christianity and making sure it feels palatable to modern people, we just need to be faithful to what God's called us to be. We need to reject this desire to mold ourselves or to just wish or gain the approval of the world. I love these words by A.B. Simpson. He says, the chief danger of the church today is that it is trying to get on the same side of the world instead of turning the world upside down. And I love these words. And part of the reason I love these words is um, I want you to know when these words were written. These words were not written in 2023. These words were written in the 1800s. See, uh, centuries ago, there was this impulse already that the church should mold and shape and compromise itself to make sure everyone in the world likes us. And I want you to know it's never gonna happen. Not everyone in the world is gonna like us and that is perfectly okay. Our job is not to be loved and approved of and accepted by the entire world. Our job is to be faithful to Jesus. Now here's the seventh and final key to living faithfully in an evil world. Number seven, we rejoice in the promise of victory over the world. We rejoice in the promise of victory over the world. Listen, church, we know how this ends. We we know how the story ends. We've read the last page. We've seen the end of the movie. We know how this thing goes. We don't have to live in panic or in stress that everything's falling apart and things are out of God's hands. He knows exactly what he's doing. And we know how the story ends. It'd be like um, if you watch the original Star Wars, and if you haven't, I'm gonna spoil it. You've had like decades to watch it, okay? All right, I'm gonna spoil it. Um, two times in three movies, they blow up the Death Star, right? Like that's what happens. Like, like this is how it goes. But if you've watched the movie, you watch the movie, they, they blow up the Death Star, the Empire loses, the Rebels win, and the good guys win in the end, all is well, they're celebrating. That's how the movie ends, right? But then all throughout the movie, there's ups and downs, there's good and bad, there's all these moments. But if you've already seen the movie, you shouldn't be stressed anymore by it. If you've already seen the movie, you're like, I know how this story ends, so I can just relax and enjoy it. Child of God, you know how the story ends. We know. We've read the last page of the book. We know that the world does not end in evil and wickedness and death and injustice and cruelty. We know the world doesn't end with those who hate and despise and mock and have contempt for God's people winning. We know how it ends. And children of God, here's what we have to recognize. We need to know this to the core of our being. We need to recognize that Jesus Christ will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. That's how the story ends. Jesus comes and he brings an end to human history. And this is what we look forward to. And so in the moments where we wanna say the sky is falling, everything's falling apart, if we don't save it right now, it's all going to be for nothing. Reject those voices. Don't listen to those voices. Don't listen to the voices that tell us everything is falling apart because everything is in the hands of an almighty and sovereign God who will one day send his son Jesus back to judge it all. Church, let me read to you the last page of the Bible. Here's your future. Here's how it ends. 
Revelation 22, verse one says, then I saw the angel and he showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and to the lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit in every month. I love this sentence in the Bible. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Like the war, the conflict, the hate, the anger, the division, the contempt, the tension we feel, it's just gonna go away one day. There's gonna be the healing of the nations. Verse three, it says, there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. Then they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Child of God, next time you see something on television that makes you want to pick up your remote and throw it at the television, the next time you see something at your phone that makes you want to scream at your phone, the next time you see something in our culture, our media, our society, our world that makes your blood boil and makes you want to lash out, don't do any of those things. Child of God, the next time you see something in this world and you are heartbroken by the evil in the world, would you instead go pick up your Bible, turn to the final page, read Revelation 22, and remind yourself that the future is not uncertain. The outcome is not unknown. God wins. God wraps it all up. Evil doesn't last forever. And in the end, we will reign with Christ now and forevermore. That's your future. That's where this is going. And that is the word of the Lord to the nations. That is exactly what it's going to do. <laughs> Children of God, let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, thanks for this morning. And thank you once again for your word. God, I just want to confess and acknowledge just the wickedness, the evil in the world today. There are things going on, things I see that break my heart, that move my heart. And yet, God, I know you're gonna do something about it. I know that you won't let this go on forever, that you're gonna make all things new, that you're gonna make all things right, that you're gonna bring your just judgment. God, help me to be part of that. Help me to walk in faithfulness to what you have for me. And help me to trust that you are the good God who's gonna make all things right and all things new. God, help us here at Calvary Community Church to be a light in the midst of the darkness. Help us to be mercy in the midst of a culture filled with hate. Help us to be love in a place filled with anger. God, help us as a church to be all that you have called us to be. We pray this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. amen.